Well, we start by turning in our Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 22 is where we should actually be. Of course, we've been studying the book of Revelation in our adult Sunday school class, and this is the last chapter, and we're going to be looking at the second to last verse of this last chapter of our entire Bibles. But in our Sunday school class, we've actually been learning that the great theme of the book, the entire book, is the return of Jesus Christ to this world. We're introduced to that all the way in the first chapter, and then, of course, we find the bookend here at the last chapter. And, of course, the return of Jesus to this world is also known as his second coming or his second advent into this world. And, of course, that can only happen, that can only take place since Jesus had his first coming and his first advent through the virgin birth in that little town of Bethlehem. So that's one of the reasons why we've been singing songs that remind us not just of his second coming, but also of his first coming. Because at Jesus' first coming, he came in order to provide full redemption to those who believe in him. Whereas at his second coming, he will come to provide in order to provide full restoration for his people and ultimately to be reunited with them after such a long absence. And so here in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, we find at the end of all things contained in this book these words. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now in this verse, we find three key things. We first find something said of Jesus. That is, he's described as he which testifieth these things. This is said of Jesus. So once again, we learn about his testimony, his witness, which is contained all throughout the book of Revelation. And what we know of Jesus means that what he says is always so. What he says is always true. His testimony is true. But then also in Revelation 22.20, we find something then said by Jesus. And what does he say? He says, surely I come quickly. Again, this is said by Jesus. And so here we have Jesus' own promise, another promise that builds on all of the other promises that we have from Jesus, that he will come again to this world for his people. And so there's no doubt about his coming. That's one of the reasons why he says, surely. Because there's no doubt, this is his truth to us. But also, when it's time to come, there will be no delay in his coming. That's what he means when he says, quickly. It doesn't seem very quick, but when he comes, he will come without any delay in the timetable of God. So that's something said of Jesus, something said by Jesus. But then we also find something said to Jesus in this verse. And that is to Jesus by John, these words, Amen, so be it, even so, come, Lord Jesus. And that has been the longing of every true Christian since Jesus returned to heaven after his resurrection. And this also is the theme of the first hymn that we will look at that was penned by Charles Wesley, who we were introduced to last Sunday night. The title of the hymn in our hymn books is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It is the same hymn that was played for the offertory this morning, but to a different tune. Actually, there have been several tunes to which you can sing this hymn. But even though we often sing this hymn when we're celebrating Jesus' first advent and his first coming at Christmas, 
it actually looks toward Jesus' second coming, his second advent, and expresses the longing of our hearts as Christians, come, Lord Jesus. And we can even get this sense from the first two lines of Wesley's holy poem. I like how the narrator described his hymns in that way last Sunday, holy poems. Let's look at those first two lines together. On the back of your message guide is actually the very first edition of this particular hymn that was printed in 1744. And so we're going to read as it was first published and we're even going to sing as it was first published. And if you'll notice in those first two lines, hopefully you can read it somewhat clearly, the first word of the second line is born. And of course, that looks back to the birth of Jesus at his first coming. Jesus was born. Whereas the first word of the first line, come, actually looks forward to the return of Jesus at his second coming. So there's a combination. There's a joining of the two, the first advent and the second advent. And we see this in a lot of our hymns because without the first coming of Christ, there would never be a second coming. And certainly Wesley understood that and had that in mind as well. And so this sets the theme for the entire hymn. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The second coming can only come because of the first coming. We can pray, come thou long-expected Jesus, because he was born to set his people free. But one of the most remarkable things about this hymn is that it expresses the longing that was felt by all of God's people, no matter when they lived in relation to the cross. I mean, if you think about those who believed in Jesus before he was born... <laughs> Didn't they look for and long for the coming of Jesus the first time? They were looking and longing for the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one of God that was going to actually come and to redeem them from their sin. That's who they looked forward to. And now for those of us who believe in Jesus on this side of the cross, we too still have that longing. So there's always been a longing for Jesus. That longing started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God and Adam and Eve were given those clothes to them by God. And Adam and Eve heard that promise of the serpent that someone from the woman's seed would actually crush that serpent's head. And there was always this longing. And there still is this longing. So all true believers everywhere and all times have been looking unto Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 12 too, because he and he alone is the author and finisher of our faith. Now, if you remember from our introduction to Wesley last week, we learn that after his conversion to Christ in about 1738, he described how everything on the church calendar that he grew up with in the Church of England came alive to him. And what we refer to the church calendar is all the different events that you celebrate because you are part of a church. And so when it came time to celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas time, he was inspired to write many new poems and many new hymns about Jesus' birth. And, of course, the same thing happened when it came time to remember the death of Christ and even the resurrection of Christ and even the, the, the powerful coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And, and all of these things are remembered on the church calendar, but the birth of Christ was such a special time for Wesley that in 1744, just six years after he was truly born again, he published a booklet with 18 hymns titled Hymns for the nativity of our Lord. Hymns for the nativity of our Lord. And out of all of those hymns, all of those 18 hymns, 
Only one of them has really survived the test of time and is one that we sing today. And of course, there are other hymns that Wesley wrote that we sing about around Christmas time. You know, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is perhaps the most popular one, but this one also has stood the test of time. And so the one that we're looking at tonight was simply labeled, and you can even see this on the back, was simply labeled Hymn 10. <laughs> of course, it's X in Roman numerals, but this was the 10th one out of 18 in this booklet. You can actually go online and see it uh, for yourself and see what it looked like. Now, there are some hymnals today that have split up his hymn into four separate stanzas. But as you can see, original, his original poem was written in and sung to two stanzas. Now, the first thoughts that Wesley had about what would become of this hymn, that would become this hymn, actually had nothing to do with Christmas at all. <laughs> uh, perhaps that's something that can't be said of most other Christmas carols that we sing. But at some point before Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, he was traveling on board of a coach, you know, one of those, um, and they, they call it a, 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 a coach train. So it wasn't a choo-choo train, like I would say to our, our grandson, but it was the kind of train of, of coaches that are combined to each other, and they're all drawn by the horses, all right? So there's multiple people, and he's traveling somewhere, and he's thinking, and he's praying, and he's really concerned about the situation of orphans. And of course, you know anything about the Wesleys, John and Charles, and you know anything about the early Methodist movement, that was one of their great desires, was to minister to the orphans and the foundlings in, in London especially, but also throughout Britain. And he was really concerned about their situation and the places that he lived and the places he served. And so as Wesley thought about those needs, the Lord brought a verse to his mind from the book of Haggai. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, these words filled up his mind and heart, where it says, referring to the Lord, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, of course, Haggai chapter 2, verse 7 speaks specifically about the first coming of the Lord. But knowing the Lord would come the first time and actually fill the house, the, that second temple with his glory, which of course happened when Jesus Christ was born and presented there in the temple, the first coming of Christ gave Charles Wesley a deep and earnest longing for the second coming of Christ because he knew that when Jesus would come, who is the desire of all nations, everything that is wrong in this world would be made right. No more orphans. No more need for orphanages. No more suffering by those children. And so he longed for the day when Jesus would come in all his glory the second time, just like he did that first time. And so Wesley wrote down a prayer, a brief prayer for Jesus' second coming that is found actually in the second stanza of that hymn. So before he ever wrote the hymn, he wrote that prayer. The second stanza actually had it published because he wanted people to know that the coming of Christ is the way that we can have those problems answered. But then, as he meditated and thought on it, he added the first stanza to focus on the promises of Jesus' coming. And so we're given this hymn that has stood the test of time. And tonight we're going to look at really two parts, the two parts that we find in this hymn. The first thing to, to focus on are those promises, the promises 
for God's people that he reflects on in this particular hymn. The promises for God's people that the coming of Jesus would and will fulfill. There are two clear promises that we find in the first stanza of this hymn. The first promise is the promise of freedom, right? The, the promise of freedom. Again, from the first two lines that we looked at just a minute ago, he says, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And of course, this is the very reason that Jesus gave himself for coming into this world, right? He came to give us freedom and redemption from our sin. Uh, go over with me to Luke chapter 4. Go over with me to Luke chapter 4, because when Jesus started his ministry, one of the first places that he went was his hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up as a boy, right? And according to Luke chapter 4, on a particular Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and stood up to read some verses from the book of Isaiah. And so we pick up the story in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Again, in Nazareth, before his own hometown crowd, picking up there again in verse 18, what, what happens? Actually, let's go back to verse 16, sorry. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty... Freedom, them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And of course, you know the rest of the story. He closed the book, gave it down again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And Jesus began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son. You see, Jesus knew why he came the first time. And this is why he came. This is why Jesus was born to set his people free, as Wesley wrote it. He did so through his life and through his death and through his resurrection from the dead in order to bring freedom. But then Wesley added two more lines to turn this promise into a prayer for those who sing it. He goes on in the next two lines. He says, from our fears and sins, relieve us. Let us find our rest in thee. Now that might have a different sound to us, because in most hymnals, including our own, we don't sing how Wesley originally wrote this hymn. Instead of relieve, we often sing release. That's right. This change in wording occurred not too long after the hymn was first published, uh, the first time I could find release was actually in a 1797 edition, but that was still some years after Wesley's death in 1788. But I do wonder if Wesley would have approved the change, and if he did, or if he didn't approve it, if he would have really liked the change. After all, to release someone means just about the same thing as to set thy people free. So I can understand why they would have possibly changed and edited it to release. But as we know from the gospel, there is an objective freedom that a person has the moment they're saved, isn't it? You're saved immediately, and you are set free from the penalties of sin and the power of sin. 
There is a real objective freedom that Christians have when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. At that moment, they experience some freedoms. But one of the struggles Christians still face is to find relief from their release. Isn't that one of the reasons why we often have our souls cast down? <laughs> why there's often discouragement and disquiet in our lives is because we forget what Jesus actually did for us. The freedom that he has already brought to us. The redemption that he has already bought for us in the cross. And so I think Charles probably had it right. Because of that release, because of that freedom, we as Christians now need to experience a relief in that freedom. And so this would be a good prayer for true believers. From our fears and sins, don't release us because we've already been released from that sin. Jesus Christ has redeemed us from that sin. Relieve me from that fear. Relieve me from that sin. Through faith in Christ, we've been given freedom. And now we just long for that personal, practical experience of that freedom so that we might find our rest in Him. But then, a second promise is the promise of fulfillment. The promise of fulfillment, there in the last four lines of the first stanza, Wesley strings together several descriptions that can be applied to Jesus from the Old Testament even. You don't need to turn to these passages. I'll just go ahead and read them as we go through them. Wesley describes Jesus as Israel's strength. And he takes that from 1 Samuel 15, 29, when Samuel said to King Saul that the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent. For he is not a man that he should repent. And of course, those truths that are applied to God the Father can certainly be applied to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit as well. Jesus is the strength of his people. He is also their consolation or their comfort. Remember, this is who old Simeon was looking for and waiting for when he was in the temple and Jesus was presented there. In Luke 2.25, it says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for who? The consolation, the great comfort of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Jesus is also described here as the hope of all the earth, which comes from Joel 3.16, where we're told that the Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. He's the hope. He's the hope of all his people, no matter where they live, no matter when they live. He's also described here as the desire of every nation. And again, this is where we find what we find in Haggai 2.7. That was the verse that God gave to Wesley just before he wrote this hymn. Now, even though there are different ways of translating this phrase, desire of nations, from this verse, I think it's still better to see it as speaking of Jesus as the greatest treasure of the world. Uh, there are some translations that talk about the world bringing their treasures to him, whereas there's really no treasure that we have that can compare to him. Jesus really is the greatest treasure, the greatest desire of nations, whether the world desires him or not. He is the objective treasure that we all need. And of course, Wesley describes him also as the joy of every longing heart. Isn't this what Jesus himself promised in John 16, 22? We'll get there as we go through the course of uh, the Gospel of John. Jesus says, and ye now therefore have sorrow. We looked at that this morning. But I will see you again, Jesus says, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. 
Isn't that a wonderful thing that when Jesus returns, when Jesus, Jesus comes back, your joy will be full and fulfilled and complete. So these are just some of the great truths and promises that Wesley knew would satisfy the longing heart of anyone who wanted to see their Savior. And only the coming of Jesus will fulfill your longing for his strength, his comfort, his hope, his joy, because he's your greatest treasure and can be and ought to be your greatest desire. So that's the first focus that we have, Wesley. And of course, this was appended to that prayer. So these are the promises for God's people that then leads to the second stanza in which Wesley offers the plea and the prayer for God's people. Again, this was the original prayer that he had when he thought about those orphans and their plight. But he knew that this prayer could and should be the prayer and plea of all God's people. So in the first part, he expresses the reason for the plea. And he does it in those first three lines. He says, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. All three of those lines point back to the birth of Christ, which is, again, the first coming of Christ. And so he describes how Jesus is born to redeem us, to redeem and deliver his people from their sin. That's why he needed to come. That's why we needed him to come. Also, he describes how Jesus was born as royalty. He was born a child and yet a king. Now, this is a remarkable part of this particular poem and hymn because this was something that God used to spread this hymn beyond the Methodist circles where it was already quite popular. The story goes that in 1855, the great London Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon preached at his Metropolitan Tabernacle in London a message on December 23rd. And of course, if it's the Sunday before Christmas, you're going to preach about Christmas, right? And he preached a message titled, The Incarnation and Birth of Christ. You can even find the text of this, this message online. And one of his main points, and I think it might have been his third main point in that message was, what did Jesus come for? What did Jesus come for? And his answer to that question of that third main point was, he came to be ruler in Israel. That's why Jesus came. One of the reasons why Jesus came. And then he adds these words. Listen carefully. He says, a very singular thing is this, that Jesus Christ was said to have been born the king of the Jews. Very few have ever been born king. Men are born princes, but they are seldom born kings. I do not think you can find an instance in history where any infant was born king. And then he quotes these two lines from Wesley's hymn. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Now there are many who attribute this quote by Spurgeon as the point when this hymn actually started to spread beyond the Methodist circles to really all Christian denominations as one of the best and lasting Christmas carols that we have in the English language. Jesus was born a king. But not only was Jesus born to redeem and born as royalty, he also describes how he was born to reign. And so, of course, all of these are reasons why we can and why we should pray this prayer with Wesley in his hymn, no matter what is going on in this world, especially when we think about the plight of other people. He thought about the plight of orphans when he wrote these words. Because he knew that when Christ came, everything that is wrong 
will be made right in this world. So these are the reasons why we should pray. But what is the, the request in this prayer? What is the request in this plea? Well, it's found in the next several lines, and it all starts with that one little word, now, right? Now. This is the true desire of God's people. This is what we want. This is what we ought to pray for. Even as Jesus has taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. What is our desire? What is our prayer? What do we plea? Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Again, isn't that the sentiment? Isn't that the longing of John himself? Revelation 22, verse 20. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. But how long do we have to wait for an answer to that plea? Well, according to this hymn, and really according to Scripture itself, we don't have to wait very long at all. Yes, there is a future dimension to the kingdom of Christ. We see that later on in the book of Revelation. It will be quite physical in nature because we are physical beings and we will experience the physical kingdom of God in this world. But there is also a present dimension to the kingdom of Christ. And it's not physical necessarily. It's more spiritual in the hearts of God's people and in the heart of his church. Some have put it as a not yet dimension that will come about in the future when Jesus will return in all his glory. So yes, we're praying that God's kingdom will come and we're waiting because it has not yet happened. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. But at the same time, there's an already dimension to his kingdom in his church and through his spirit. We can have a taste of the reign of Christ now already even as we look forward to the rain that will come that is not yet. And this is why we can pray and plea with, with Wesley, by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. He's not talking about the not yet. He's talking about the already. He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about the present day situation of his own life, his own relationship with God, and his own church. And so we can and ought to long for not just Christ's rule in the future, but Christ's rule in our hearts now. But again, at the same time, we still have that longing for Christ's reign that has not yet come. And of course, he ends that beautiful, holy poem with these words. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Because he knows that Jesus must reign and will reign. So may the longing of this hymn be our longing as well. Come thou long expected Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again that we've seen through this hymn both the promises of the coming of Christ and then what our prayer should be because of the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ in the past that will lead to the coming of Christ in the future. The first advent in, in Jesus came to redeem us from our sin, and then the second advent in which he will come to restore all things and then be reunited to his people forevermore. And so, Lord, I pray that even now we will experience a taste of that reign and that rule in our hearts through your Spirit in the already, even as we long for the time when Jesus will reign in this world in the not yet. 
But Lord, we thank that we're, th we're thankful that those promises are true. And through those promises, we pray. Help us, Father, to remember these truths. And help us, Lord, as we sing to each other these hymns, these very familiar hymns, that, Lord, we will recognize the truths that are in them, the biblical truth that is reflected in them, so that as we sing even tonight, we will teach and admonish one another in the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs that we enjoy. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand together and sing this hymn? We're going to sing the words that are on this, and really the only word that's different is relieve versus release. If you want to have the notes, um, the, what number is it? It is 84. You can turn there if you'd like, but I don't think you're going to need it. But why don't we stand together? And we're going to use the words that Wesley first published in 1844. Now, when it comes to the tune for this hymn, uh, we don't know how it was originally sung. Uh, we don't even know the tune that Wesley might have had in mind for it. Uh, there are a few of those hymns that he wrote that he had a specific tune in mind for, but we're not sure what that is for here. Uh, the earliest known tune to be published with a text is a traditional German tune called Stuttgart. It was first found together in 1715. That might have been one of the earliest tunes, but that tune required the hymn to be split into four stanzas. Uh, this is the, the Stuttgart is actually the most common tune to this hymn. The second most common is the one that is in our hymn book. It's a Welsh tune. And the, the of course, you know anything about Welsh, it's kind of a hard language to pronounce words. But I think it's Hifredal. And it retains the two stanza structure that Wesley originally wrote. So let's sing this together. Remembering, as someone once said, that this is a hymn for any time not just Advent. And so based on Jesus' promises, let us make our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and sins relieve us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit rule in all our hearts alone by thine all sufficient merit raise us to thy glorious throne. Amen. Let's close in prayer.
Father, we thank you again for the lessons that we can learn from the hymns that we sing. And Lord, the great truths and doctrines that we find about our Lord Jesus. And Lord, I know that Christmas is a special time for the entire world. But Lord, we're thankful that it is an especially special time for those that know Christ. And Lord, for those that have the experience of even Charles Wesley, who after he was converted to Christ and had that true born-again experience, all of these church and Christian festivals and celebrations took on a whole new meaning for him. And so, Lord, we're thankful that because of how you stirred his heart with the birth of Christ, he was able to pen these words that focused on the return of Christ. And now, Father, I pray that you'll help us to keep these words and these thoughts and these truths in our own minds, in our own hearts, Lord, especially when we think about the plights of others, even as he thought of the plight of the orphans. And, Lord, we think of all of the plights that are going on in this world by people that are struggling, even believers that are suffering, even the ones that we prayed for tonight. Help us to have that great longing in our hearts for the coming of Christ. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. And of course, as John said, even so, come, Lord Jesus, because when he comes, all that is wrong will be set right. But in the meantime, Lord, we pray that he too will rule in our hearts, even now. That, Lord, we're waiting for the not yet dimension of the kingdom, but, Lord, where's this already dimension that we can experience because of the presence of God in our heart and our life through the Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that we will live with longing, but also with a taste of that longing fulfilled in what you've already provided for us through your Spirit. Now, Father, I pray that you'll bless our week. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'll help us to take these words in this song with us. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we will again seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, even as we say, Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name and for his sake we pray these things. Amen.